It's nice in Nice at 59 degrees. For New Year's Day 2013, this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Here in the U.S., it's all fiscal cliff all the time. Europe sees the irony. There's been a lot of very critical comment coming from America about Eurozone politicians kicking the can down the road. And yet the U.S. fiscal cliff is exactly that. And later, why Africa is a place to turn for hope in 2013. Because we see African economies on the move, showing high rates of growth and development. Because of the breakthrough in women, I think it's going to be a banner year. That's all ahead on The World. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, demonstrating commitment to global economic, social, and environmental stewardship. Learn more in the 2012 Medtronic Corporate Citizenship Report, online at Medtronic.com, and by Focus Features with the new film Promised Land, starring Matt Damon and John Krasinski, from the director of Goodwill Hunting, in theaters everywhere Friday. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Fiscal cliff. You're probably heartbroken that you woke up on New Year's Day today to find those two words still ringing in your ears, not to mention the weeks of wrangling on Capitol Hill over government spending and taxes. Across the pond, Europeans have been paying close attention and having similar debates just as heated as here. Joining me now from London to talk about the Euroview of this fiscal cliff is Louise Cooper. She's a financial analyst at the consultancy Cooper City. Uh, How has this fiscal cliff debate come across to you all in Europe, Louise? Does it seem as ominous as it's been made out to be here? It seems extraordinary that the two sides cannot do what's best for America and not compromise. Having said that, that's exactly what we're seeing in Europe, to be brutally frank. Politicians failing to come to an agreement over the fiscal mess uh, that we are all facing. Louise, you suggest in your blog today that there's some hypocrisy coming from Washington. Explain that. I do find it quite entertaining that there's been a lot of very critical comment coming from America about Eurozone politicians kicking the can down the road. And yet the U.S. fiscal cliff is exactly that. It was created in August 2011 because Congress couldn't decide what to do about the debt ceiling. I think what we're seeing across the world is politicians having great difficulties dealing with their debt crises, essentially because they can deal with their debt crises, but they're very unlikely to get reelected once they've done what needs to be done. Mm. So the politicians who keep running with this fiscal cliff notion, I mean, it it feels like the world's facing, or at least the United States is facing financial Armageddon. But why does the Dow Jones keep going up? First of all, I think investors and traders can't quite believe that American uh, parliamentarians would be so stupid as to take the U.S. economy into recession again. I think there's just like, no, they're not going to do it. They're not that stupid. They're really not going to do this. And therefore, I think to a certain extent, you know, the traders and the investors are kind of ignoring the day to day news flow and going, they'll get there eventually. 
which is kind of what happened here in Europe, actually. Yeah, I was going to ask you, did that? Did the same thing happen there during... It, yeah, we just got so bored of reading, you know, this person says this, this person says this, this person says... Uh, you know what? You're going to you're gonna do something eventually. Let's just ignore them because they're going to do something eventually. So that's the, the first thing that's going on. But I think the second thing that's going on, the second thing is because of the actions of the Federal Reserve, the, the, the central bank effectively printing money and bringing down the interest rate on American government debt, the yield on US treasuries, those actions force investors into equities, into the stock market, into corporate bonds. So we almost see that the stock market is insulated from political incompetence because of the actions of the Federal Reserve. Now, in some ways, that's a good thing because stock markets aren't falling, corporate bonds aren't, aren't falling, etc. But in another way, it does mean that there's not this financial market pressure on Washington to do a deal. So here we are on New Year's Day, uh, Louise, uh, looking forward to 2013 economically for Europe and the U.S., looking hopeful to you. Yeah, and I'm kind of like I've got sort of my my hands on my head, you know. Uh, <laughs> That's <laughs> trying, not a good sign. Not, trying to be optimistic. Um, very difficult times. 2012 wasn't a bad year for financial markets, given the news flow we've had. And I think a lot of that is because of the central bankers around the world. Mario Draghi at the European Central Bank, Mervyn King at the Bank of England, uh, Bernanke at the Fed. The politicians are slowly coming to grips with this crisis. But it's thanks to the central bankers that the world is not looking a much more ugly pace than it really could have been. Louise Cooper, financial analyst at the consultancy Cooper City. Thank you for your time. And Happy New Year's. Happy New Year to you. Let's hope 2013 is a bit better, although I'm not hugely optimistic. The 2012 doldrums have hit especially hard in places like Greece, Portugal and Spain, where unemployment hit record levels and more than 50,000 families were evicted. As the year wound down, a handful of people committed suicide after learning they would be kicked out of their homes. Now in Pamplona, a group of experts who helped carry out the evictions has said no more. Those experts? Locksmiths. The world's Jerry Haddon reports. It's a pretty ingenious way to stop evictions, really. The police might come and drag debtors out, but if no one changes the locks on the apartment, the bank can't repossess it because the evictees can get back in and the legal proceedings to get them out again would take months, even years. Banks and government authorities have been evicting an average of two families a day in recent months in and around Pamplona. Locksmiths like Iker de Carlos are hoping to put an end to it. De Carlos says in this small city, the dozen or so locksmiths often know the people they have to lock out on eviction jobs. De Carlos told local TV that locksmiths worked often with the police and bailiffs, evicting families or elderly folks who barely had time to get their pants on before being put out on the street. De Carlos says he and his fellow locksmiths decided last month that they could no longer ignore such suffering. We're people, he said, and as people we can't continue carrying out evictions when people are killing themselves. De Carlos was referring to the suicide of a woman last fall outside Pamplona. As authorities, including Judge Juan Carlos Mediavilla, were arriving to evict her, she jumped from her balcony. Just after her death, Judge Mediavilla spoke out publicly, his voice shaking. He said, we can't let economic problems devolve into tragedies like this. 
The judge called on the government to revise legislation so the growing number of Spaniards who can't pay their mortgages don't end up on the street. Spain's center-right government initially said it would take immediate steps to protect about 600,000 of the country's most vulnerable, including families with small children and the elderly. A law was passed allowing some people to negotiate lower payments with banks, but it excludes retirees and any single mothers with a child over three years old. And activists say banks, which had promised to ease up on evictions to avoid a social disaster, have not done so. The social tension over evictions has led to protests across the country and grows as unemployment rises further. But the locksmiths of Pamplona say their tiny rebellion may be the most effective way to stop evictions, even if it's only one lock at a time. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon. And Jerry joins us on the line now from Barcelona. That story was a perfect example, Jerry, of how the economic crisis, this macro malaise that economist Louise Cooper was talking about earlier, is really being felt on the ground by real people. So let's step back uh, and look at other on-the-ground examples of how regular folks have been feeling the financial crisis in Europe in the past year. What would you say was the biggest story and what do you retain from it? Well, the overarching story of the year, as we've been hearing, is the economic crisis in Europe. And in terms of how that's affecting real people, I think the big story that's been going on actually for more than a year, but that continued through 2012, is the mass exodus of people from Southern Europe to Northern Europe in search of work. You know, that's Spain, that's Greece, that's Portugal. Where I live, emigration is up 20% from last year, and it was already rising. It's been rising since 2007 when the property bubble here burst. And what's most disturbing about this particular movement of people is that it's the country's best and brightest. It's young, educated people who can't find jobs here. There have been worker exoduses from Spain in the past, but those have always involved laborers looking for jobs in construction and other low-paying types of work. These are the brains. This is the real brain drain growing on, and the indications are that it's only going to get worse with time because unemployment is supposed to rise in 2013 in Spain. As an example, last winter, I I was in Munich, Germany, and I accompanied a couple of uh, young engineers, some guys that were in their early 30s. They were from sunny Malaga, Spain. Mm. They hadn't been able to find jobs for more than a year, and they had sent their resumes to Germany, gotten a bunch of offers. All they needed to do was moved to Germany and learned to speak German. And I met them on the day they arrived and you know watched them like deers trapped in headlights sort of wandering through this big foreign city. And they'd left their families behind because you know they just couldn't find a way to support them in Spain. So I think that's the big sort of overarching story that's affected the most people. So this must have created enormous competition for jobs in all these unpredicted places. And social stability, how has that been affected? Well, you've got a surprising amount of stability still in place in Spain, for example, because uh, people have savings. There is family to fall back on. It's a you know family-oriented culture. More and more people, however, are moving in with their parents or even their grandparents and, and having to live off of pensions. On the other side of the Mediterranean in Greece, as we've seen so many times on the news this year, the country's in much worse shape, even though it's been receiving the bailouts. And we've seen social unrest in terms of protests on the streets, people trying to even storm the parliament there, you know, fighting with police during uh, general strikes, and also an alarming and rising trend of blaming immigrants for the problems domestically and even a rise in attacks on non-Greeks, for example. Mm. So you spoke about the job refugees across Europe. I mean, in France, it's a slightly different type of refugee. There, There's a celebrity exodus uh, over high taxes. Describe what's going on there. 
Right, one single man, but he's caused almost more of a publicity buzz than the mass exodus of uh, of trained workers in the rest of Europe. This is Gérard Depardieu, the famous French actor. He, in response to this same economic crisis, but for very different reasons, has decided that he is going to relocate to a very small village in Belgium. He said he was doing it because he did not want to pay a new 75% wealth tax that French President François Hollande was trying to get instated and which was supposed to go into effect today. But France's highest court actually just struck down the tax, saying that it was unfair for technical reasons. Now, French President Hollande says that he's going to stick by this principle of taxing the rich at a higher rate. Although uh, in a speech today, he didn't mention the 75% figure. So there, that may be an indication that he's going to back off on the tax. But certainly Depardieu's move infuriated many, many French, but also many rallied behind him because the idea of taxing even the wealthy at such a high rate seems patently unfair to some. And it's not just uh, Gérard Depardieu. There's also uh, French composer Jean-Michel Jarre, who's reportedly looking for residency in London, also the head of LVMH, the French luxury goods group. He's uh, looking for a residency in Belgium. Uh, Jerry, you cover the economic crisis uh, there in Barcelona, Spain. You also live it there in Barcelona, Spain. What are you most worried about in 2013? Cutbacks in education and healthcare. We see in our local school how uh, the classroom sizes are growing. And your kids are in the local schools. Our kids are in the local schools, yes. And we see that the support for the teachers, for students with special needs is disappearing. The hours in the school day are getting shorter with regard to healthcare. Personally, we don't have any issues to deal with, but every day we read about people who who need basic kinds of testing like x-rays or CAT scans. And it takes now, instead of you know days or weeks to get those things done, months. And we see doctor strikes and nurses strikes shutting down hospitals in Madrid and Barcelona almost mm-hmm. every single week, making basic services and access to health care more and more difficult. The world's Jerry Haddon in Barcelona. Thank you so much. Thank you, Marco. More reflections on reporting from a turbulent Eurozone in 2012. Jerry posted a new blog today. That's at theworld.org. Still to come on The World, look aheads on what's happening in the Mideast and in environmental developments in the coming year on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, advancing access to health care through global philanthropy. Learn more in the Medtronic 2012 Philanthropy Report online at medtronicfoundation.org. And by Focus Features with the new film Promised Land, starring Matt Damon and John Krasinski from the director of Goodwill Hunting in theaters everywhere Friday. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. It has been a mixed bag, to say the least, in the Middle East. There is, of course, a civil war that continues to royal Syria. Just this morning, President Bashar al-Assad's forces bombed parts of Damascus, along with rebel-held sections of Aleppo. Revolutionary momentum has stalled in other spots as well, like Bahrain and Saudi Arabia. But the Arab Spring has also given birth to fledgling democracies in places like Tunisia and Libya. Today we're checking in with our correspondents on various issues, and we turn now to the world's Matthew Bell in Jerusalem. He says a year ago the mood in Egypt was electric. People were looking ahead at the first real free presidential election in the history of Egypt. They were talking about getting a new president, about getting a new constitution. There was a real can-do spirit. Here's an example of what I'm talking about, Marco, from an activist I talked to at a rally for one of Egypt's presidential candidates back in May. 
the Egyptian population who's going to, to change his Egypt, okay? We are going to make a new rule that the government is not responsible for everything. Government is responsible for planning. Government is responsible for supporting new services, okay? But the Egyptian population who is going to work, is going to motivate himself to build his country. Not only the government will build, but the Egyptian population is going to build. So, Matthew, what about that can-do spirit today in Egypt? I don't want to say it's gone completely, but what a difference in in the last visit to Egypt, which uh, was last month. What was going on was yet another election. This was, uh, I think it was the eighth time that people were going to the polls to vote for a a very controversial draft constitution um, in a referendum. And the excitement, for the most part, was gone. A real frustration with uh, President Mohamed Morsi, who was the the Muslim Brotherhood's candidate, uh, even people who were voting for the Constitution, many of them I talked to, just, just seemed that they were hoping for the best, voting yes, and just wanted to move on. Here's an example of what I'm talking about. I spoke with the Cairo University professor, Mustafa Kamal Saeed, and, and here he is talking a little bit about how even some supporters of the Muslim Brotherhood are really let down by what they've seen in recent months. People had very good ideas um, about um, how efficient, how honest, uh, how uh, clever Muslim brothers uh, would be in running the country. And uh, we saw a level of incompetence that far exceeds anything that was experienced at the time of Hosni Mubarak. Well, he's kind of disappointed. Matthew, what is the status of Egypt's constitution right now? It's passed, so legally it's it's moving forward, but there's a sense that this was rushed through and it doesn't really have the consensus that a constitution should have uh, for the country's future. Another huge story in, in the Mideast, of course, is Syria. Uh, you recently went to Jordan to meet and speak with Syrian refugees there. What did you find? What did you hear? You listen to analysts who've been following events in Syria, and some are at this point saying that we could be seeing the beginning of the end, that maybe Bashar al-Assad's days are numbered in Syria. Uh, but I have to say, when you go and you hear some of the stories from refugees, people that have left everything behind, I mean, I saw videos that uh, I thought these are going to give me nightmares and, and just heard heartbreaking details about people's lives and the scale of the human misery. Uh, it's really mind-boggling, and it makes it hard to think about an end game in Syria coming anytime soon. The Mideast obviously continues to be consistently the hottest neighborhood in the world, Matthew. I guess you're girding yourself for another tumultuous year ahead. What, what story do you think might point the way to what's ahead right now? Well, from where I'm sitting here in Jerusalem, the, the first big story of the year, of course, is the Israeli uh, election, the national election. Everyone expects Benjamin Netanyahu to win and to be prime minister again. But I think the big question is, how is Israel, the, the most important U.S. ally in the region, going to work with a second-term Obama administration? What is going to happen with the two-state solution, which has been sort of the, the bedrock uh, roadmap, if you will, for U.S. policy in this region for decades? And there are real questions about whether this is even possible still and whether Israeli politics and the Obama administration's priorities are going to gel going forward. The world's Mideast correspondent Matthew Bell in Jerusalem. The coming year presents uncertainties for people all over the world. But in Africa, some people are feeling bullish about 2013, especially women. In many African countries, women are finally rising to positions of leadership. Here are the thoughts for the coming year from four such women, starting with an urban health advisor 
from Kenya. My name's Jane Otai, and I'm hoping that in 2013, there'll be a better world for mothers, daughters, sisters, and wives. These are the women who nurture, support, and lift up their families despite this incredible hardship in so many parts across Africa. For many women in Africa, quality health care is not available, whether it is to deliver their baby or to access family planning services. For many women, this is not available. My hope is that 2013 is the year that all women, irrespective of where they live, their age, their economic standing, can have access to quality health care and that governments will commit to make this happen. In the 21st century, no woman should be denied their basic human rights. My name uh, is Joyce Banda. I'm the state president of the Republic of Malawi. Uh, I'm pleased to say that uh, while we are passing through a very difficult time, my faith and hope is in the people of Malawi. We hope that we shall have a good rainy season, and I hope that we will be able, therefore, to recover our economy. While statistics show that poverty has worsened in Malawi, there's hope for the future. We are creating jobs for people to engage in productive activities that will change the situation at their household. I'm Ruth Onyango. I'm from Kenya, a food and nutrition scientist. Over the last 20 years, I've realized that in sub-Saharan Africa, most producers of food are smallholder women mostly working in situations which don't give them much support, not much information, and they don't even own the land that they till. And so I become their voice. I become their advocate. Where am I hopeful for 2013? That this advocacy, not just by me only, has seen many players come to the scene. They are listening, signing up, realizing that you cannot govern a hungry people and you cannot govern malnourished people. And so I'm hopeful that as we go into 2013, Ruth can begin to see less and less of these emaciated, malnourished black African children on television sets because it embarrasses me so much. Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, President of the Republic of Liberia. I'm very optimistic about 2013 because we see African economies on the move, showing high rates of growth and development. Because of the breakthrough in women, I think it's going to be a banner year for women who will be competing at all levels for leadership in their societies. Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, president of Liberia. We also heard from Nairobi-based urban health advisor Jane Otai, the president of Malawi, Joyce Banda, and Ruth Onyango, a nutrition professor in Kenya. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, Pete Seeger on the legacy of political singer-songwriters like Chile's Victor Jara. Quite often, a uh, good singer is punished by the authorities. Theodorakis in Greece, Nazim Hikmet in Turkey. I've often tried to sing the songs that got them in trouble with the authorities. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, demonstrating commitment to global economic, social, and environmental stewardship. 
Learn more in the 2012 Medtronic Corporate Citizenship Report, online at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. There's a somewhat reassuring image online this New Year's Day. I'm looking at it now. It's a satellite image taken yesterday of the top of the world locked up in ice from the southern tip of Greenland to the Bering Sea. That's the way things should look up there this time of year, but it was a much more disturbing picture just a few months ago when the Arctic ice cap reached record lows. The unprecedented ice melt was one of the biggest environmental stories in a year where environmental news often pushed wars, economic crises, and even a presidential election off the front pages. Here with us now for a look back at 2012 and ahead to 2013 is the world's environment editor, Peter Thompson. So how are you going to remember the year that's just finished, Peter? Well, Marco, I remember sitting here with you almost exactly a year ago and predicting that 2012 would be the year in which climate change really stopped being mostly a slowly developing story and started becoming daily news. But, of course, I had no idea what the year would actually have in store for us. I mean, just look at the U.S., We had that bizarre March heat wave, which sped up spring by several weeks. Then starting in June, we had the massive heat wave and drought. And of course, in the fall, we had Sandy. There was a storm that many weather watchers say was the most bizarre and damaging that they've ever seen. And of course, as you mentioned, we also had that unprecedented melting of ice on both the Arctic Ocean and Greenland. And I've got to say, Peter, I noticed a real change in the way uh, these kinds of stories were reported. I mean, in the past, it was rare for news reports to actually draw a direct connection between extreme weather events and climate change. But last year, it seemed journalists were a lot less hesitant to uh, at least raise those questions. Yeah, and that's really the result of two converging trends. One is that these previously weird and rare weather events are just becoming more common. So in effect, the real world is starting to look more and more like the forecast, which of course reduces the doubt about the science. Then on the other hand, the science itself is becoming much better, and scientists are starting to be able to tease out the influence of climate change on particular weather events. Of course, no one can say that this weather event was caused by climate change. It's really more a matter of how much climate change is influencing the weather. So let's look ahead to uh, the remaining 364 days this year. What are some of the big stories you're going to be watching? Well, climate, of course, is still going to be huge, as it will be actually for the rest of our lives. And that's actually one of the big challenges for journalists. It's how to cover a story that's immensely important, but also at some point just sort of fades into the fabric of our lives and becomes sort of the new normal. So we have to find ways to tell small slices of the story along with the big picture. Now, one slice of of that story that a lot of people have been watching is the uh, proposed Keystone Pipeline. Yeah, that's coming back around for a very important decision in the next few months. You remember a year ago, President Obama basically put it on ice by ordering a new environmental review. The State Department needs to sign off on it because the pipeline from the tar sands of Alberta would cross into the U.S. Climate activists have basically drawn a big line in the sand over that, and it'll be interesting to see what happens in light of a couple of big changes from a year ago. One, of course, is that President Obama is no longer facing re-election, so the politics are very different. Mm. Then there's the fact that the Secretary of State who has to rule on the plan is likely to be John Kerry. And Kerry has been a real leading voice in the Senate on pushing for action on climate change. So his ruling on Keystone will tell us a lot about whether or not he and the president will bring a new emphasis on climate change to the second Obama administration. And what about you, Peter? What are some of the environment stories that your curiosity is really driving you toward this year? Well, I'm going to be looking more and more for stories on the struggle to find 
find solutions to the climate crisis, which in effect mostly means stories about innovations in energy. Um, the world's still pretty much in gridlock when it comes to international agreements to cut climate pollution, but there are really interesting things happening around the world in energy policy and technology from places like Ireland and Japan, even to places like Ghana. So we're going to try to get to as many of those hopeful stories as we can. All right. The World's Environment Editor Peter Thompson, thank you. Thank you, Marco. You can see that map of the Arctic I mentioned earlier and hear highlights from our 2012 environmental coverage at theworld.org. You can also read Peter's latest blog post inspired by our interview last week on the environmental challenges facing reindeer herders in the far north. It's a look back at the lessons from his first reporting trip to the Arctic 15 years ago. That's all at theworld.org. It's GeoQuiz time, and joining us from our GeoQuiz location, New York City is the world's Alex Galifant. Hello. Happy New Year, Alex. Happy New Year, Marco. So you've got a New York quiz for the new year, and it's not like I've already given away the answer. You're off on a GeoQuiz scavenger hunt today in the city, right? That's right. I've got three clues for you, and each one is related to the word new. New as in New Year's and New York. So give us the first one. Okay, this is one for all the artists out there. I'm looking for a cultural movement that swept Europe and beyond in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Remember, it's related to the word new. Okay, number two. Okay, number two. Tell me the name, this is hard, tell me the name of a particular type of smoked salmon. Now, historically, it was made using salmon from the Gaspé Peninsula in eastern Canada. Again, the answer is related to the word new. Type right. of smoked salmon, okay? Okay, that's number two. Uh, what's clue number three? Okay, final clue. I'm looking for a place called, for our purposes today, Nu, Nu, or in full, the Detinu Snoitan. I don't even know how to sum up that last clue, but uh, we'll, the, we'll take it for the what it's worth. The Detinu Snoitan. Look backwards to 2012 if you want, but in 2013, this is a place in New York where you're definitely going to see some resolutions. Detenusnoitan. I just like saying that phrase. <laughs> all right, they're all related to the word new. Those are the three clues to the three places, all in New York City. And in just a few minutes, the world's Alex Galifant will take us to these three places and answer the quiz today. Alex, see you in a few. Okay, Marco. Let me take you to another city that is new, Medellin, Colombia. Okay, the city itself isn't new, but it is presenting a new face. Medellin was once the murder capital of the world, ground zero for Pablo Escobar's cocaine cartel. But the crime right there is way down, and lately Medellin has emerged as a hotspot for urban planning and innovative mass transit. As John Otis reports now from Medellin, these projects are part of a long-term plan to fight poverty and remake the fortunes of the city. The upper reaches of a mountainside slum called Comune Trece are too steep for cars or buses. Streets give way to staircases. To get home, many here used to climb the equivalent of a 28-story building. But last year, Medellin officials installed an outdoor escalator. A former Medellin mayor came up with the idea after riding an escalator for tourists in Barcelona. With its stylish orange roof, the Comuna Trece escalator seems a little out of place. It runs past one-room shacks with laundry hanging from clotheslines. At first, some residents were baffled. 
City Hall worker Claudia Arismende says that many people had never ridden an escalator before. So the city sponsored field trips to shopping malls so residents could practice. Now we've gotten the hang of it, says Jose Ivan Taborda, who is 69. The escalator's comfortable and necessary for older people. It's a relief because we don't have to climb all those steps. The escalator is part of a broader plan to reduce crime and instill pride in gang-infested slums. Police work is important, but the thrust of the strategy is to install public transportation linked to newly built parks and libraries that encourage people to reclaim their communities. It's a radical departure from past policies. <laughs> Comuna Trece and other slums were founded by people displaced by Colombia's guerrilla war. The slums sprang up far from downtown, and residents felt isolated and ignored. Lora Isasa is a Medellin City Hall consultant. This displaced population didn't feel that they were part of our city. One of the main projects to integrate Medellin is a network of cable cars that opened in 2004. They carry people from the mountaintop slums to the subway system. Now, getting downtown takes 45 minutes instead of two and a half hours. The gondolas move 20,000 people a day. They're so popular, they've inspired similar cable car networks in the mountainside ghettos of Rio de Janeiro and Caracas. While the view is impressive, some cable car passengers opt to read during the ride. They check out books from a handsome new library and community center right next to one of the cable car stations. Several subway stations house smaller libraries as well. Many of these experiments were cited last month when a survey sponsored by the Wall Street Journal, Citibank, and the Washington-based Urban Land Institute named Medellin one of the world's most innovative cities. But not everyone is convinced. Comuna Trece resident John Hernandez says the flashy new projects have distracted people's attention from lingering issues like high crime and that the government is sweeping those problems under the rug. Yet the murder rate has dropped by half in the past decade. Tourists now come to the slums to ride the escalator and cable cars, and property values are on the rise. What's more, foreign investors are moving in. Over the past five years, Hewlett-Packard, Kimberly-Clark, and Unisys have all opened production and research centers in Medellin. Consultant Laura Isasa concedes the city still struggles with violence, but things are changing. This is a conflict that could only be ended through real opportunities for the people. These advances, she says, have helped Medellin turn a corner. For The World, I'm John Otis, Medellin, Colombia. Soak in the picturesque views of New Medellin while riding the new escalator in Comuna Trece. John Otis sent us a slideshow. That's at theworld.org. A knife, a fork, a bottle, and a cork. That's the way to spell New York. Our geo-quiz today was all about things in New York that play off the word new. Hey, it's New Year's, newness is in the air. So your task was to follow Alex Galifant's clues to these places. And Alex, your task now is to take us through the boroughs of the world's greatest city and answer this special New Year's Day three-part geo-quiz. Okay, well, to get to all of these places, I'm going to need a way to move at high speed. And since I'm British, here we go. Here we go. 
Clue number one: a cultural movement that swept Europe and beyond in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, related to the word "new." The answer's here in New York's Madison Square Park, a monument from 1881 that's arguably the United States' first example of Art Nouveau, new art in French. Here's writer and editor David Cobb Craig with a definition. Art Nouveau is characterized by、uh, limply swaying, curving lines, by botanical motifs of vine, flower, frond, and by flowing human figures, usually female. The monument here in the park is of the Civil War Admiral David Farragut, and the pedestal beneath his statue is indeed overflowing with carvings of women, water, and dolphins. Art Nouveau flourished here in the U.S. at about the same time as it did in Europe. But it never really caught on in New York's architecture. Instead, in structures like the Chrysler Building, it was Art Deco that ruled the sky. All that curved, sort of feminine, languid, limp kind of thing was just not the sort of macho ideal that I think America thought of itself at that time. But that's just a theory, which you definitely see in Art Deco, right? You see very、yeah. strong, bold, metallic lines. Yes, you do. Uh, uh, the strength of geometry, especially in the triangle, there's nothing stronger than the triangle, which is practically the leading motif of Art Deco. All right, moving on to clue number two. I wanted to know the name of a particular type of smoked salmon, traditionally from the Gaspe Peninsula in eastern Canada. The answer is Nova. While the peninsula is in Quebec, the name comes from the salmon rivers of nearby Nova Scotia. And there are few places better to learn about smoked fish than here, Russen Daughters, an appetizing shop that's been on New York's Lower East Side since 1914. It was founded by Joel Russ, who emigrated to the U.S. from what's now southern Poland. His great-granddaughter Nikki Russ Federman is now a co-owner of the shop. Today, Nova also refers to a style of smoking salmon. When you think of New York smoked salmon, it's Nova you're thinking of. To get Nova's distinctive character, a salmon is cured in a brine of salt and sugar, and sometimes water, and then it gets a mild smoke from a mix of fruit wood chips. So it could be、um, apple, cherry, and that imbues the salmon with that particular flavor. So that's Nova. One more clue to go. We've arrived at the third of our locations for our New Year's Day geo quiz, and we're at the Detinu Snoitan. Detinu Snoitan. Looking back, backwards, of course, that's the United Nations, the UN, or NU in our quiz. Now, of course, during the year, each year, the United Nations passes a number of resolutions. But what ought to be the United Nations' New Year's resolution? The greatest problem for me is to clear the problem in Syria. The climate is becoming warmer, so I want the United Nations could、uh, make decisions about tackles.、Uh, Global warming problems. I think they should end poverty and help、uh, poor countries in the world. To be the leader of international organizations, to、uh, grab leadership in in international arena. Visitors to New York there from Germany, China, France, and Ecuador. I met one more person outside the UN building, 
an Iraqi by the name of Mustafa. He wanted only one thing from the United Nations, that 10 years after the US-led invasion, Iraq should not be forgotten by the international community. For the world, I'm Alex Galifant in New York. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The fingers strumming this guitar belong to the late Chilean singer-songwriter Victor Jara. He also wrote the song, but Jara was more than a singer-songwriter. In Chile, he remains a symbol of freedom, a poet who helped define the nation. Chile was redefined in 1973. That's when a military coup toppled the government of Salvador Allende and anyone who was associated with it. Jara was one of thousands who died during that coup, led by General Augusto Pinochet. Jara's crime, as far as the Pinochet regime was concerned, writing and singing songs like this one, Manifiesto. Yo no canto por Victor Jara has been dead for almost 40 years now, and until this past week, no one had been charged with his death. But last Friday, a judge in Chile issued an international arrest warrant for two former officers, while several others have been charged as accomplices. One of the two officers is already dead, but the other is living now in Florida, and it's expected he'll be extradited to Chile. American folk singer and songwriter Pete Seeger has long paid tribute to Victor Jara's legacy in story and song. Seeger joins us from his home in Beacon, New York. First of all, Happy New Year to you, Mr. Seeger. Tell us how you first heard about Victor Jara. How I heard about him was a translation of his uh, last poem. It's uh, called Estadio Chile. That's uh, the stadium where he was detained and tortured. Can you recite a verse or two from uh, Estadio Chile? Yes. Now, imagine that you are hearing... We are 5,000 here in this little part of the city. We are 5,000. How many more will there be in the whole city, in the country? 10,000 hands which could seed the fields, make run the factories. How much humanity... Now with hunger, pain, panic, and terror. Bum, 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 bum. The blood of compañero presidente is stronger than bombs, is stronger than machine guns. Oh, you song, you come out so badly when I must sing the terror. What I see I never saw, what I have felt and what I feel must come out. Uh, those last three words in English are then given as uh, Victor originally wrote them. Ara brotar el momento. Ara brotar el momento. Which means, I guess, the moment will come. The moment will come. That's incredibly, incredibly powerful. Um, it, it goes right to the heart of who Victor Hara was, right to his death. Um, the, the, the details of that death were 
were pretty sketchy. Uh, they're outlined in the indictment uh, against the officers who killed him. Um, what was the story you heard about how he was detained and killed? Because apparently all we know is that his widow discovered the body with 44 bullet holes in it on a road outside uh, Santiago. The story I was given was that one of the officers looked at Victor and made the motion of strumming a guitar. And Victor nodded, and that sealed his fate. He was grabbed and taken out to the center of this stadium. And now with 5,000 people watching in horror, he was told to put his hands on a table. Soldiers came down with rifle butts on his hands until his hands were nothing but bloody pulps. One of the officers says, now sing sing for us, you so-and-so. And uh, Victor staggered to his feet and walked away from the table, walked towards the stands and shouted, uh, Compañeros, let's sing for El Comandante. And waving his bloody hands, they all started singing the anthem of Salvador Allende's Popular Unity Party. And uh, it was too much for the soldiers, and they got their machine guns and sprayed the stands and Victor uh, until a huge number of people were killed, and Victor, of course, fell. Do, do you recall how you came across that story? Who told, who told it to you? I suppose some of the survivors from that terrible experience uh, told it, but that's how I was told it. And I don't remember, because at age 93, my memory is going about lots of things. I mean, re regardless of the details of his death, uh, Victor Hara was a poet uh, wh whose force w was in his words. Um, I find it kind of fascinating that your your kind of appreciation of Victor Hara really happened after he died. And I'm just curious, w what kind of musician does it take uh, to kind of penetrate the heart of Pete Seeger uh, after death? Well, quite often a, a good singer is punished by the authorities, uh, Theodorakis in Greece, and uh, Nazim Hikmet in Turkey. I've often tried to, tried to sing the songs that they've made up, which got them in trouble with the authorities. I've often quoted Plato, who says it's very dangerous to allow the wrong kind of music in a country. And I've quoted as an Arab proverb, when the king puts a poet on his payroll, he cuts off the tongue of the poet. Mm. Pete Seeger, thanks so much for speaking to us about the late Victor Hara and uh, finally this uh, what seems to be a day of justice for the Chilean musician. Thank you. Pete Seeger there talking about Victor Hara, whose alleged killers have now been charged by a judge in Chile. Another sign of justice and how times have changed is a stadium in Santiago where Hara was tortured and very likely killed. That stadium has actually been renamed Estadio Victor Hara. 
We leave you with Pete Seeger singing his ode to the late Chilean singer. From the Nana and Bill Harris Studios, I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for listening. Victor Hara of Chile Led like a shooting star He fought for the people of Chile With his songs and his guitar His hands were gentle His hands were strong The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org by the Henry Luce Foundation for increased understanding of East and Southeast Asia, and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI Public Radio International